Lords, it's time for you to go to children's ministry. And we're going to talk further on the value of truth today. This is part of our values series and I want to speak about a culture of truth or certainly truth as a value within our lives. And um, I might ramble a little bit because in the, in the old days I used to use uh, printed notes that I would print out and uh, then when I had some additional thoughts on my way to the church meeting, I would just scroll with a pen on the notes. But when I, you know, I have an iPad now, I don't know how to mark up the notes I've already made. So there are a few thoughts that came in my mind as I was on my way here. And we're talking about truth. And uh, I remember hearing about this kind of guy who works for the railways, whose job it is to go and inspect the, the train carriages, their wheels. And he would have a special hammer and he would hit those, those wheels with his hammer to, to hear the sound it makes because hidden inside that strong hardened metal wheel there could be a crack and if you don't detect that crack and deal with it then the wheel could break while the train is going and then the carriage would derail and people would die. It was an important job and no one really celebrated that guy very much because his work was all behind the scenes. But he would go around diligently tap, 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 hammering on these, these wheels. And one of the things about truth is that um, truth is actually seeing things as they really are. And life doesn't actually work that way normally. Normally there's invisible cracks and hidden defects and failures and weaknesses that are... Uh, invisible that you can't see and they can lead to major problems and the answer is to find those things and have them repaired it's not to just bury them better and uh, and hope that they just don't result in any problems and so when we talk about truth it has a very big impact on our lives whether we're willing to deal with truth or not but truth is not an easy thing to deal with because it's often the revelation of something that's far from perfect the illumination of something that you don't really feel comfortable about. So as I talk about truth, the way I'm heading is I want to reach a point where by the end of this message you can see that Jesus makes us uh, secure enough to confront the, the failures and the weaknesses that truth reveals. And in His goodness, in His uh, mercy, He actually makes a way for us to deal with those things. But if we don't live in truth, we won't experience the freedom and the healing. Right. It's, a, it's a painful process, but you have to get to the other side of the offense or the vulnerability. And that's really what I desire for us as a people, as a church, to be able to be real, authentic, not living in secrets and darkness and fears and shame, but actually being the people God's called us to be, admitting that we are weak, but He is strong. Amen. So I'm going to pray and then carry on with my message. Heavenly Father, Help us to embrace your word this morning. You want to bring us life. That's your desire. Your goodness wants to take us to good places. So God, won't you give us the grace this morning to see your heart and to hear your call. In Jesus' name. Amen. So truth is a, it's actually an enemy of a few things. Truth is, truth is the enemy of four things that I want to look at this morning. Truth is the enemy of superficial unity. If you look at the idea of truth, truth comes along and it actually says that uh, I'm more important to true unity than anything else. You can't have unity without truth 
And so truth comes and it actually is the enemy of superficial unity. Now let me try and explain this, because truth at the same time is the only basis for unity, but it comes and it also reveals where false unity or a superficial unity is being constructed. One of the examples of this in the body of Christ is that those who overemphasize unity sacrifice truth in order to obtain unity. So from a doctrinal perspective, when it comes to believers in the church, people are often wanting unity and sometimes they want unity so much that they ignore the truth and just say you must just accept and be tolerant of everything and every sin and everyone. And so it's possible for truth to be sacrificed in order to obtain unity. And that's the false unity. In fact, back in the, 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 um, the previous century, there was quite a strong move of ecumenicalism or ecumenism, depending on how you, who you're reading. This goal for the church to be united, and in order for people to bring believers together, they had to water down their theology or their doctrine to the lowest common denominator which along the way meant many of the guys were just pretending to like one another while they still had deep disagreements over what they believed. And that's a kind of a false unity which even in its idea can extend further to the point that the, the, the Pope, not the current one, but one of the former Popes was planning to go and have a, um, you know, attend an interfaith prayer meeting and pray together with Muslims. Now, is that right? Well, some people who oversimplify things, they say, oh yeah, you see, pretty much every God is the same God. The Muslim's God and the Jew's God and the Christian's God, it's all the same God. And so if you just look past your religious differences, you can be united. It's nonsense. That's not truth at all. That's absolute garbage. And the Pope has no place praying with a Muslim, nor does a Christian. You can love a Muslim. You can witness to a Muslim, you can have a conversation with a Muslim and listen to their perspectives and their understanding. But you can't say that you are in agreement, because you are not in agreement. And so when we compromise truth in order to make unity our goal, we've turned unity into an idol. And truth is not ever going to be satisfied with that kind of unity. The, the kind of unity that God is building is unity in one one who is true, Jesus. And outside of Jesus, there isn't going to be unity. No real unity exists except that built on Jesus and His Word, which is truth. And how this operates then, A.W. Toza provides a great example in um, his book, The Pursuit of God, where he speaks about pianos being tuned. And when you tune acoustic pianos, if you had several pianos and you wanted to tune them, you don't tune them to each other. I don't know if you've ever seen a piano tuner. I, when I was a child, I, I witnessed a piano being tuned once. And this guy came and he unpacked all these little tuning forks and he started to tune the piano to the tuning fork. And that external reference provides him with the standard to which he's tuning that piano. And he could go all around that town tuning pianos. I lived in a small town and many people had pianos in those days. Go all around that town tuning pianos. If you put all those pianos together, they would all harmonize. There would be unity as long as those pianos are tuned to that external standard. So this is the idea. 
A.W. Tozer puts forward in The Pursuit of God. He writes, Pianos are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which one must individually bow. So 100 worshippers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. That's a powerful idea. He's saying if you make unity your goal, you turn away from God to try and provide unity within your own understanding. But if you make Jesus your goal, you become united. That's basically what Tozer is saying. It's a beautiful way of looking at it. He says, they're in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. So he says, a hundred worshippers meeting together, each one looking to Christ, that unites them. So if we're truly committed to unity, we must be focused not on unity, but on Christ and growing in the knowledge of Him. And this is now, I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to verse 14. In Ephesians 4, verse 11, we read, reading about Jesus when He ascended. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. There's that same concept in the Word of God. The goal is that unity emerges as we understand our faith correctly and know the Son of God correctly. Know Him as He is. Not as we imagine Him to be, as He actually is. So until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So there we see it, that doctrine in itself can take people all over the place. There can be... Uh, winds of doctrine that you could be carried about that are false teachings. There can be teachings that are one degree off and teachings that are a hundred degrees off, but it's in understanding Christ Himself, the knowledge of Christ, and as you grow in the unity of the faith, that you actually become one, that you become mature. You are built up into Him. So, we must not pretend in the church to, that we are one, don't pretend that we're one just by holding hands and saying kumbaya or whatever. It's like you can create sentimental moments that feel like unity, but you're not actually there yet. In fact, I think we will only be like Him fully once He reveals Himself. We're transformed and then finally the church will be one. So unity is a, a direction we move in as we grow in Christ, but it's not a destination we will ever reach until He appears. Because only once we are fully like Him will we, we be fully united. Why am I saying such a harsh thing about the church? It's because I have a concern that sometimes the church pretends to be more together than it is and starts playing diplomatic, political games where we all show respect for others who we actually in our hearts are actually feeling some kind of a contempt for. And that's a kind of deceitfulness. Yes. It would be better to speak the truth in love 
and reason with one another and lovingly debate our doctrine than just pretend that we're all agreed. Anyway, that's just maybe a pastor's burden more than it is the everyday guy. But hopefully you're also passionate about truth, unity, and the Word of God. So that's the first point I wanted to make is that truth is the enemy of superficial unity, but it's the path to true unity. Once we all agree on the gospel, once we all agree on who Christ is, we are all united, but we will only get there by looking at Christ and looking at the Word of God intently gazing into it. Amen. The second thing about truth is that it's the enemy of superficial peace, and it's also the path to real peace. And this one, I think, starts to strike closer to home when you start looking at how Jesus dealt with human families and culture and societies around him, and how he dealt with Israel and the Jews, and it wasn't all just automatically coming up roses, we're all together, you know, in peace. He didn't say that. In fact, in Matthew 10 verse 34, I'll read Matthew 10 verse 34 to 37, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a father against her mother, and sorry, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I've always found this Jesus, he, the things he said, they're so offensive. They're, they're so radical and uncompromising. He doesn't ever pretend to be less than the King of Glory who de de demands and is, is, is worthy of all our devotion. So he, he, he asks people in society that question like, um, who are my, who's my mother and my, my brothers? When his actual biological flesh and blood mother and brothers have come to fetch him, and he says, he denies it. He's like, who are they? Only those who do the will of my father. And he, he basically separates himself from all the expectations of a, a, a healthy society and says, actually, I haven't come just to bring peace. I'm actually going to result in families being split. Now, this becomes very real when you become a Christian, but maybe your father isn't or your brother isn't. And you realize that Jesus is out of being the way, the truth, and the life, and saying, no man comes to the Father but through me, He's drawing you away from your very flesh and blood family and saying, if you don't stand with me, then you don't get to be with reconciled to the Father. And being reconciled to our Father in heaven means that, to some extent, we are divided from everybody else who isn't reconciled to our Father in heaven. So Jesus is the Prince of Peace, but he's also drawing a dividing line and saying that the truth is you won't have peace with God except through him. So if you're not in Christ, you aren't going to have peace. And that will divide even your own household and your own family. It's that serious. No lasting peace exists outside of Jesus. And this is um, how we can read it in Ephesians 2 verse 13 to Ephesians 2 verse 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, that's the Jews and the Gentiles, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So what happens as a believer is you, you're drawn into Christ Himself, you become one with Him, uh, and, and you are a new creature, you are a member of His body, and you are joined together with others who were also outsiders. They might have been Russians, they might have been Americans, they might have been South Africans, they might have been Canadians, it doesn't matter where they came from. They were Jews and they were Gentiles. They were sworn enemies in society and culture. And Jesus said, in him you're going to have peace for the first time. So, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So, he, he reconciled us both, whoever we are, strangers to one another, we reconciled to each other as we are reconciled to the Father. But again, there's no reconciled to each other without being reconciled to the Father. And so Jesus is the only way to have true and lasting peace. Now what happens is, in some societies, we find that peace itself becomes a kind of a, an, a, a, an idle value. It's like, don't disturb the peace, don't say something provocative, don't rock the boat. Madagascar is very much a nation like that, where people have put peace up on a pedestal and they said, we can have peace in our culture as Malagasy. We, we have it. We even have terms for it and we celebrate those terms. But what, what is actually tragically happening is people are saying, at the expense of truth, we're going to pretend to have peace because beneath the surface, people are still angry with each other, but they just can't show it as road rage. So they'll go in the, around about the day looking happy and if you lose your cool, you've lost face, you've lost social respect. So everybody's very good at maintaining the peace, but at the same time, they're maintaining inside of them some kind of anger, bitterness, malice, all kinds of ill intent. And when the opportunity comes, they backstab through gossip and slander rather than confronting the person face to face. So rather than express the stuff you've got against someone else in society, you hide it and you keep the peace, but then behind the scenes when you have an opportunity to hurt that person, you say something about them. You just sow a seed that came from that heart. There was no real peace, it was only the appearance of peace. And families at the same time want to appear like everything is going well on the outside. Immense social pressure on the families in Madagascar to look healthy and happy. And inside they can be in pain, in division, in grief, in, 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 in shame. There can be sins that are in the dark and no one can talk about them and no one has a way to deal with them because truth has been pushed down in order to maintain peace. And I would tell you that that's not true peace. And that truth in that case is the enemy of peace because truth wants to come like a rock in a still pond 
make waves and show what's really there. And so the, the incest, the debt, the division, the bitterness within families that's never seen in the light. Truth would say you can never have true peace unless you confess, unless you admit, unless you acknowledge, unless you bring to the light those shameful things. But oh, it's too shameful, so we'll just put on a facade and we'll just pretend that everything's going well in our lives. Madagascar as a nation, I think there's a lot that's not going well. And it's a wonderful place, full of wonderful people, but very good at not admitting these things that need to be dealt with. Very good at keeping it in and not losing your cool. And truth doesn't like that. Truth actually wants to show you a path how to deal with those things and put them in the light. Without making it personal necessarily or without making it humiliating. This is a concept that only the gospel can actually meet though. There's no other path that will work without Jesus because everything else is too painful. There's, there's no way I would expect you to confess the shame if you didn't have somebody to cover your shame. And that's supposed to be Jesus, not secrecy. It's a difference. Covering your shame, just hiding it in the dark, doesn't deal with it. So that's the second point. Truth sometimes wants to upset the peace in order to broker a real and lasting peace in Christ. Truth is also the enemy of quick success, but the only way to real flourishing. What do I mean by this? Well, many times you have options in life where truth makes it harder for you to progress. So for example, sometimes it's expeditious or advantageous to tell a lie. Uh, maybe you want to uh, sell something and you know it's not perfect, so you hide its imperfection, you intentionally deceive the buyer by painting over the, the, the cracks and the weaknesses and selling the furniture anyway. Or maybe it's the fruit and you hide the bruise on the inside, you know, how you package it. My issue with some of these supermarkets. Um, you get home, you unpack that thing and you feel robbed because you just bought, you thought you were buying six apples, but one with a massive bruise was just hiding on the inside, you know, carefully hidden. Lying, cheating, stealing, bribery and corruption, they all serve a purpose. They all give you a shortcut to what you want. It's a shortcut to success. Like when I was teaching here at the school, I said to the kids, cheating is always an option. They want to know, can I cheat? Of course you can cheat in your test. It's always an option. People to try to tell you you can't cheat or wrong. They should say you mustn't cheat. Of course you can cheat. Cheating is always a choice you can make in life. But what happens now is you pass that test, you get good marks through cheating, and you get the shortcut to feeling like you've achieved something. But actually, in the long term, when you finally become whatever you're supposed to be, and you're underqualified because you're a fake, the wheels will fall off. Sooner or later, things will disintegrate. And so when you've cheated your way through life, when you've paid bribes and taken shortcuts, and constantly deceived and tricked people, when you've lived in that kind of double standard life, lots of people live like that. They're living constantly afraid of the day when everything's going to blow up. 
The day is coming when the light will shine and the wheels will fall off. It's a terrible position to be in. So all of these things, lying, cheating, stealing, bribery and corruption, they all have short-term wins and in the long term they harvest destruction. That's why in Ephesians 4 verse 28 to 29 it says, Let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor doing honest work, see, truthful work, honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So there's this purity of speech and this purity of action that the Bible says you should live by. That's a culture of truth. And truth is the only way to flourish and prosper in the long term. As Proverbs 14 verse 34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So after centuries of being very skilled at tricking people, we live in poverty. It's that simple. After centuries of being very skilled at doing just what serves us now, without dealing with the truth, we're now bankrupt. We live in poverty. Because righteousness exalts a nation. And when a nation doesn't live by righteousness, but lives by bribery and corruption, it's actually ultimately disgraced. It's in tatters. And if you want to look at the stats of the nations that are corrupt, I don't single out Madagascar, because actually all nations are corrupt to some degree. But when you look at the ones that never embraced, let's say, a Protestant work ethic or a truthful justice system, but actually just kept the bribery channels running, they've never prospered and never will. But the nations that overhauled their justice systems, that did away with corruption, that started to have honest judges and honest rulings, they started to thrive. Because righteousness exalts a nation. And sin is a disgrace to any people and every people. So rooting out bribery and corruption will lead to a people prospering. It's the only path, but it requires truth. So truth, again, is an enemy to short-term success. You can cheat in business. You can get rich quick. In the end, if someone's being cheated, the nation will not prosper. And my last point, truth is the enemy of your facade, but the only way to be who you really are supposed to be. So in the fourth one, truth is going to come to our lives as individuals and it's going to say, I'm at odds with your fakery. I'm at odds with your pretending to be something that you're not. Truth will come and confront us and say, if you denying who you are, then you'll never really be whole. You'll never really be healed. And who are you? You are broken and you are weak and you are in a sense sinful, at least at birth and in action, we're all sinners. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he comes as the truth and he says there's no other way to come to the Father, meaning to come to be reconciled to God, to be healed, to be, to be whole. And truth will come and it will say, your goodness is not good enough. Or the failure and shame that you're hiding needs to be brought to the light. 
And as Jesus ministered, he was very offensive because he came and fulfilled something Isaiah prophesied about being a, a, a stumbling block and a rock of offense to the people who encountered him. And this is, this is where it's most interesting to me how our pride reacts to the gospel. Jesus comes and he says, there's no way to the Father except through me. And the only way you can get to God is by acknowledging you need Him, that you, your own self is not good enough. The Jews really struggled with that because they had a, a measure of self-righteousness that they had developed by obeying the law. So they felt that through the law they could actually vindicate themselves before God. But they knew they weren't getting it right anyway. So they were in that place of frustration. But for God to come and say, actually, every good thing you've done does not count to give you reconciliation to God or holiness or right standing with God, justification. It, it, you can't justify yourself by your good deeds. He was effectively saying that everybody's the same. They're all sinners and all need Him. There's no difference. All have sinned, but there, there's no difference. You must understand that. It means the most righteous person is still not righteous enough. And that offended those who viewed their own goodness as their means to be a good person, to be acceptable to God. And so it was very offensive, and many of them rejected Jesus because He said you could get there to God through Him without it being by your own works. It's like, no, no, I want recognition. I want to be acknowledged for who I am, status, success, uh, my own good works, my good deeds. And Jesus comes and says, none of that actually earns any points with the Father. In fact, the text was, your righteous deeds are as filthy rags. That's from the Old Testament. God speaking through the prophet saying to Israel, your righteous deeds, your good works are, are, are abominable to him because they'll never be good enough. And that was, that was so offensive to the Jews. And I would put it to you that in his context and through history, Jesus is actually the most offensive person who ever lived. Surely he has offended more people than anyone else who ever lived. Jesus is the most offensive person in history. See, truth always offends us in the process of setting us free. It, it says to us, you aren't sufficient, but God will cover for you. You know what's really hard for a man is when someone else wants to pay the bill. Like, I go out to eat, have a coffee, whatever. It's my, my honor to pay. So I go there and then this other guy I'm friends with, he always insists on paying. In the end I'm angry with him because he won't let me be the man. It's like he's putting me down and he's paying. That means, you understand what I'm saying? That's what God's doing to your pride. He's coming along and saying, I'm never going to let you pay. Ever. Because I'm God and you're not. And, and you're never going to be good enough. But can you accept that I love you anyway? Yeah. Can you accept that I'll show you mercy even though you don't deserve mercy? Can you accept that I will accept you even though you're still hiding your shame and not accepting yourself? 
You're like, no, no, God, I must first deal with this. I must first fix this. I must first make myself good. And God's saying, give up. Just admit you're a sinner. Admit you failed. And we're like, no, no, I'm going to get this life right, God. I'm going to stop smoking and I'm going to get all my finances in order and that pornography addiction. I'm going to deal with it, God. And then you will accept me. And God's saying, no, no, no. That stuff you're keeping in the dark, you should actually put in the light and just trust me with your life. Because I'll accept you. I forgive you. I give you mercy in Jesus. Irrespective. And this is, this is amazing to me that we... We will our whole lives grapple with mercy. We won't want to accept it. We will want rather to be a better person. We should become better after the fact. After we're born again, after we accept mercy, after we see the grace of God, we should be saying, well, I'm going to leave all these things behind because of the joy that I've found in Jesus. So truth is the thing that comes in offense in the process of setting us free. We read in Ephesians 4 verse 15, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We need to be able to be real, and in a culture of truth we can admit who we are. This means that when you start to understand the grace of God and the mercy of God, you can find a place where you stop pretending. Yes. You stop faking being perfect. And you can confess your sins to a brother. I'm not saying stand up and tell the whole church your most shameful secrets. That would just be uncomfortable and unnecessary. But like to be able to go to someone and say, hey, man, I've really messed up. I was in a really rough argument with my wife and I threw a plate across the room and it nearly hit her and I feel awful, another guy who's a believer would be able to say, hey, let's talk about that some more. No condemnation, no rejection, no putting you into humiliation, but just saying, okay, you're a, you're a hu human being, you're sinful and broken, you've made a mistake. Now let's talk about how we can build a stronger, healthier way of dealing with your emotion or your marriage problem. We, we as, as pastors have found it very um, affirming when someone comes to us and says, Hey, I've, I'm tempted to do this or I'm feeling this or I've made this mistake and it didn't have to be forced into the light. In other words, when someone comes and voluntarily discloses the thing that they're ashamed of, we find that very affirming because it means people are starting to understand the gospel. See, you are not at risk of being humiliated by God and by the gospel. It's only your pride and it's only your fear that keeps you back from the truth and putting the truth, the facts in the light. So. We don't want to be a people who pretend to be perfect, who pretend our marriages are perfect, who pretend our families are perfect, who pretend our personal lives are perfect. We want to be a people who are able to say, I understand the gospel says that God has forgiven me and accepted me despite my imperfections. Now I want to deal with my imperfections by bringing them to the light, by confessing and repenting and seeking counsel and guidance and 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 help within the family. 
I think that to me is one of the things that makes the church such a beautiful family. Because in the end, we don't have to hide our junk. We can talk about it and we can bring it into the light with someone, one of the leaders or a close Christian friend. The reality is we are all sinners and all saved by grace through faith and have access to the same mercy. So there's no one who's better or worse. You know, you could be the most serene looking pious face on a Sunday. You could come here and you look at me with a beaming like, you know, all these things we're talking about, that's somebody else, you know, and you're not fooling me because that's just pride. You know, it's just, you know, if you're feeling like you've got it all together, so what? It doesn't promote you in the eyes of God. It doesn't make Him love you anymore. And our sins haven't made Him love us any less. Because that is the fact that while we were still His enemies, He sent His Son to die for us. Amen. And He so loved us that He saved us even before we knew Him, even before we turned to Him, even before we repented of anything, He loved us and did all that for us. And so when I speak about truth as a value, I believe it should build a kind of a robust community where people are able to take their, their weakness and their shame and bring it into the light in some kind of a private or confidential or holy environment. It's not like stand up and shout it from the rooftops, but it's not hide it in the dark and leave it in the dark. It's bring it out to someone who you know isn't going to go and gossip about you. And that's why no one should gossip about people, because you undermine the trust and the covenantal grace that we should be sharing. So if someone ever tells you something, what do you do with that? If it's too big for you to handle, go to one of the pastors or their wives and talk to them. But if you can handle it, keep confidences. Keep confidences. That means you keep it to yourself. You love and pray for that person who shared their weakness. If no one ever shares anything with you, what does that say about you? I don't trust you. What an honor if someone comes and confesses their weakness to you. What an absolute honor to be entrusted with someone else's vulnerability and shame. The thing that could destroy their life, they told you. Now don't you dare destroy their life. Hey, if it's a criminal matter and they're unrepentant, it's a bit different. So when it's too big for you to handle, go to one of the leaders and talk about it. Get one or two counselors involved. But in general, most people's issues are not criminal, they're moral condemnation, they're living under guilt and shame. Truth doesn't have to break you. Truth can actually heal you. That's why the truth sets us free. But it's only after our pride is offended and we have to humble ourselves and we have to walk into the light for fear of our lives falling apart and Jesus comes and He says, I'm going to hold you together. I'm going to love you. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to make you strong where you were weak. That's what I love about God. Rather than calling us failures, even when we are failures, He redeems and begins to empower and transform our lives. There really is no condemnation in terms of punishment for your sins in God. There is discipline. There is sometimes rebuke and correction. There is sometimes painful processes of healing. 
But there is no rejection and condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't come and say, oh, this one thing, that's the one thing I couldn't deal with. Take your worst sin to Jesus and he looks at it and he says, oh, I can handle that. I died to pay for that. I, I sometimes thought, you know, there must be this, there must be sins that are so bad, you know, that it's really hard for God to deal with. And one day the Lord said, what do you think? I deal with mountains of sins. I've paid the price for every sin from every human being. How can you possibly think your sins are too big for God to deal with? Just give God the respect He deserves for all He's done. He's able to deal with your issues. You are not the worst person He's ever encountered. You're not the worst person He's ever saved. You might be bad. I mean, I think we all have our junk. I think we all have our junk. And this is why we have to learn that truth is not our enemy. Bringing things into the light is actually a path to healing. And confessing a sin to a brother, it's like, it says that in the Bible, confess your faults to one another, that you may be healed. It's not that God is withholding a physical healing miracle because you are living in some secret sin. It's, it's actually deeper than that. It's that you may be healed, meaning your entire life set at peace with God. The healing of the soul. And sometimes with that comes healing of the body because people who are carrying their sins in secret often end up physically ill even from the stress that they're under. So yes, it's all interwoven that you might even be physically healed of something when you deal with or repent of some sin. But it's not some kind of a voodoo magic. It's more like you were just so stressed. Now God has healed you and you found such grace and such peace. Oh, your blood pressure will actually even come down. Won't you stand? I'm going to finish there and the band can come up. Heavenly Father, as we stand before you, we stand here, Lord, guilty of thousands of failures. We've sinned and we are, Lord, ashamed of the things that we don't get right. But God, you died for us while we were yet sinners. You loved us while we were your enemies. Now that we have come to such a great salvation, Lord, we want to live in it. We want to run this race in the grace of God, full of faith, Lord God, that you are big enough to deal with our darkest parts. And when you said through the psalmist that you desire truth in the innermost parts, Lord God, as we stand before you, we ask that you would shine your light yes. and bring your truth into the innermost parts. Yes, we want to be a people who live in the light, with truth in the innermost parts, who delight in the truth, Lord. Yes. May we value truth as something that brings freedom and healing, because Jesus, you are the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by you. So we come today to you, Jesus, and we put our eyes upon you, the author and the finisher of our salvation. We say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let's worship him.